Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I'm your host, Rob Christofferson. In 1977, a series of UFO and humanoid sightings would capture the headlines in and around West Wales. Some would call it the Dovid Enigma, others the Terror Triangle or the Welsh Triangle, and even the Broadhaven Triangle. But whatever you call it, what you're about to hear is very strange. Friday, February 4th, 1977, Broadhaven, a village at the southern corner of St. Bride's Bay. It sits right on the coast, which offers stunning views of the Atlantic. Broadhaven Primary School lies at the southern end of the village. Quote, it is approached by a short service road called Marine Road and lies with its back against the first gentle undulation of coastal hills. There is a small sports field immediately adjacent to the tarmac recreation area surrounded by the school buildings. The field is bounded by a fenced stream on the south and west sides. Beyond the stream, on the south side, the land forms a fold and is broken up into more small fields. These fields are rough pasture land sprinkled with scrub and small trees. They slope rapidly down from the crest of the fold on their southwest side, to the more or less flat land at the bottom, which is really little more than a bog, especially in wet weather. It was in the second of these fields beyond the stream, measuring them longitudinally from the school fence, that the UFO appeared. End quote. The story of the Broadhaven school visitation is, in fact, an hours-long affair occurring between 12.30 p.m., and 3.45 p.m. on Friday the 4th. To quote the Western Telegraph, The flying saucer was first seen at lunchtime on Friday behind a bush about 300 yards from the school. Most of the children give the object a classical saucer shape, though others have drawn it looking more like a pudding or even like a cigar. Some accounts give it a dome and windows. Others say it had a flashing light. The children say it disappeared and reappeared from time to time. It was seen by other pupils during the afternoon break and immediately after school. Six of the youngsters say they saw a spaceman with the saucer. He was dressed in the same silver-gray color as his saucer, and according to some witnesses, he had pointed ears like Mr. Spock. Ten-year-old David Ward said he wasn't a very tall person and didn't look very nice either. A boy named Tudor Jones was one of the first to see it around 1 p.m., around lunchtime. He saw the object on the ground moving among the trees. He also saw a man nearby, which, quote, made me cry and scared children, end quote. Jones was of the belief that it was man-made. Another lunchtime witness was Philip James Reese, age 10, saw the object at around 1.30 p.m. And, and observed it for approximately 30 minutes. Quote, My friends and I asked the headmaster to have a look at the object, but he refused. A couple of my friends saw a movement of a figure, but I did not. I was frightened. Two friends, Tudor and David, were very frightened. End quote. 
The David he mentioned was David R. George. He was among the lunchtime crowd, and later saw the object again a couple hours later. He described the object as large, silver-colored, and hummed. It looked like a saucer with a point, he said. He too saw a figure, and was a little more descriptive. It was a man wearing a silver suit. He could only see his ears, which were described as long. After the second encounter, he was so frightened that he cried. The second and most prominent set of sightings occurred between 3.30 and 3.45 p.m. The most prominent witness for this time was David Davies, who was 10 years old at the time. Davies was standing at the top end of the school, looking into the bushes when he saw a bright silvery cigar-shaped object pop up from the brush. Davies added, quote, The cigar object seemed to be tugging an object which was silver, end quote. Tudor Jones noted in his testimony, quote, The ship seemed to be stuck, tried to take off and then disappeared behind a bush, end quote. Joining him at the time was Michael Webb, who described the object as cigar-shaped, with a red light flashing on top. And David George, who was there for both sightings, also described a humming, silver-colored object that, quote, looked like a saucer with a point, end quote. Randall Jones Pugh, an investigator with the British UFO Research Organization and founder of the UFO Investigators Network, was notified at 4.50 p.m. that same day by the mother of Dave Davies about the Broadhaven School incident. Quote, Accordingly, I drove down to Mrs. Davies' home at Salbury Hostel, Tears Cross, and interviewed her son David, who subsequently agreed to accompany me to the spot. We arrived at Broadhaven School at 6 p.m., and made our way to the spot where the children had witnessed the UFO. However, it was raining heavily at the time, and it was also becoming dusk, and in view of the fact that further progress to the actual site of the landing was impeded by a fence bordering a swift-flowing stream, I decided to leave any further investigation until the following morning." Saturday morning, he phoned Hugh Turnbull, a reporter from the Western Telegraph, and together with Dave Davies, the three of them searched the site of the UFO incident. Inspection of the site failed to turn up any evidence, but that didn't change how believable the ten-year-old sounded. Mr. Ralph Llewellyn, the school's headmaster, had been urged by the school kids to go outside multiple times to see the object, but he refused, believing that the kids were making it all up. It wasn't until the following Monday that he was convinced enough to have each child draw a sketch of what they had seen, and a lot of them are remarkably similar in what they depict. It's hard not to see the parallels between this case and the aerial school landing, which we covered in episode 91. At times, you could confuse the sketches for one another. The press swamped Llewellyn for interviews for days, and in one of the few that he did stated, quote, Having talked to each of them individually and seen their drawings and allowing for embellishment, I do not disbelieve they saw something they had never seen before. I do not believe that primary school children are capable of a sustained, sophisticated hoax. The thread which appears to run through their stories is that the object was silvery yellow, cigar-shaped, with a dome and possibly a light on top, end quote. Now, it wasn't only the children that saw strange things in the vicinity of Broadhaven School. 
Nearly two weeks after the incident, an anonymous woman who was leaving school early that day, around 10.30 a.m., stepped outside her classroom. Quote, Something caught my eye. I stopped and could see a large object, oval-shaped and with a slight dome, the color of shining metal, and I also noted ridges. I stepped back, intending to call someone, and then heard a humming noise and watched the object glide away to the left, end quote. A couple hours later, two women working at the school went outside and saw what they first thought was a sewage lorry out in the field. They were so convinced of this that they went out there the next morning, accompanied by their husbands, to look for tire marks, um, though they could find none. Rodhaven Primary School wasn't the only school where UFOs were reported. On Monday, February 7th, 20 school children at Herbranston School in Milford Haven saw a silvery-white cigar-shaped object flying noiselessly over the school. That same day, the Edenhurst School, located in Newcastle, received a visit from, quote, a silvery-blue cigar-shaped object, Though it was described in a variety of ways, it was present in the sky for about 10 minutes before it disappeared into the clouds. Two days later, on February 9th, quote, a pupil at Pembroke Comprehensive School, whose hobby is drawing, went to school at about 8.45 a.m. He was quite early, and few people were about. After walking around for a while, he heard a buzzing noise and looked around to see a, quote, plate or saucer-shaped UFO, mostly silver, end quote. It had yellow-green lights on the side and kind of retro rockets, as they describe it. On top of the craft was a round thing like an egg yolk. This was mostly gray, but flashed to white. The witness tried to find someone else to confirm the report, but by the time he had done so, the object had disappeared. The whole incident lasted 45 seconds. The object was sharply defined and stayed completely, but still revolved. Witness noticed the, that birds nearby were disturbed. End quote. The following week, on the 16th of February, nine girls of the Rosibol County Primary School, I apologize for totally butching that pronunciation, in Anglesey, described what they saw. One witness, Aguar Jones, age 10, stated, quote, 3.20 p.m. Wednesday, 16 February 1977, we were playing netball with Mrs. Williams in the yard. She was showing us how to throw the ball in the net when I saw an object high up in the sky. I shouted to the others, and they all looked up and saw it. It had a black dome on top and a silver cigar-shaped base. It was traveling smoothly across the sky in a northerly direction. It went behind the only cloud in the sky and reappeared again, then disappeared. Mrs. Williams took us inside, and without conferring, we all got a piece of paper and drew what we saw. End quote. The publicity of the Broadhaven case led to a number of new eyewitnesses coming forward with additional stories of encounters going back to December of 1976. On the 9th of December... 76, Dorothy Kale was traveling from Broadhaven to Milford Haven in a friend's car. Along with her son, the three witnesses observed a bright light suddenly on the left-hand side of the road, 
quote, it was vaguely dome-shaped, and then as it flashed, there appeared to be a zigzag nucleus, rather like an electric light filament. It gave a yellowish-white light, which was so bright that it lit up the whole of the surrounding area and the sky above it, end quote. The driver stopped the car, fearful of slamming into the dome, but on the fourth flash, it simply disappeared. For Pauline Coombs and the Coombs family, it all began on the evening of January 14, 1977. Ripperston Farm sits in isolation on the Atlantic coast, overlooking St. Bride's Bay. This remote farm produced dairy products. The farm is surrounded by military bases within a 20-mile radius, including the Broady Royal Air Force Base, a Royal Aircraft Establishment missile range, and the area played host to a number of low-flying corridors, a nearby tank range at Pendine, and an American Navy submarine tracking station. Billy Coombs purchased the farm in 1974 and moved his family of six there. According to Pugh and F.W. Holliday in their book, The Dovid Enigma, they are, quote, practical and pragmatic, with far too much work and responsibility on their hands to entertain psychic fantasies. On the evening of January 14th, Pauline Coombs was doing the dishes after their evening meal when she noticed an orange light hanging over the bay. Pauline leaned over the sink, cupping her hands over her eyes to get a better view of this light. She noticed that it had a tail of flame stretching behind it. Her mind raced through a series of explanations. A comet or ball lightning, but no, that couldn't be it. Whatever it was, wasn't moving. It couldn't be a plane, flare, or missile, either. But then, the object began to sway back and forth, its pendulous movements hypnotizing her. It was as if the object was waving at her, letting her know that they knew she was there. Pauline grew more and more uncomfortable by the display, which she observed for over 20 minutes. The object eventually shot off down the coastline at incredible speed. Now, Billy had been asleep in the chair, and she woke him, claiming that she had seen a plane go down. The weather was miserable, but Billy donned his rain gear and walked down to the coast. He returned a short time later and explained to her that there was nothing. Absolutely nothing. The next day, a number of unmarked army trucks, soldiers soldiers in camouflage, and approximately 50 frogmen appeared at Ripperston Farm looking to investigate the coastal path. When asked what they were doing, they simply told the family that they were trying to rebuild it. But when Billy would try to get closer to their operation, they would prevent him from doing so. This incident served as a triggering event for the Coombs family, as their property would play host to a series of incidents involving strange lights, odd hums, electrical problems, tall spacemen, disembodied hands, and men in black. Ripperston would not be the only farm to play host to strange objects. The manager of Ripperston Farm was a man named Richard Hewison. He had an adjacent farm of his own, the Lower Broadmoor Farm, located in Little Haven. The property was managed by himself and his wife Josephine, both of whom had a bachelor's of science in agriculture and botany. On the morning of March 26th, 
Josephine was lying in bed for a few more minutes, as it was a Saturday and the children were home. Looking out her bedroom window, sitting in front of her greenhouses, she could see a strange object parked in front of them. She stared at this object for about two minutes before realizing it was not a piece of farm equipment. Quote, It was in three tiers, she stated. It seemed to be round, but when you see a thing in cross-section, I suppose you can never be sure. There was a definite dome to start with, and then a central portion, but there seemed to be a rounded ridge, if you know what I mean, between the layers. When I described it to the children, I said it looked rather like a squashed jelly mold, which really it did. It was a smooth, aluminum-colored, bulbous shape. It was pretty well as high as the greenhouse, maybe 15 feet, maybe, and about double the greenhouse in width, which would have made it 35 to 40 feet wide, end quote. With the spell of this UFO broken, Josephine decided to wake her son so that he could see, but through the course of changing rooms, the object had gone. According to the Hewisons, the farm had a high turnover rate, changing eight times within a 40-year span. They liked to joke that the farm was haunted, and maybe it was, though they never would have thought it was by a UFO. The local newspaper, the Western Telegraph, carried a number of sightings. Quote, Yet another UFO had been spotted by block-stock breeder Mr. Peter Buford at Glassfren St. Clear's. My wife first saw a thin orange, red light, on the horizon, he said, it seemed to be pulsating for two minutes, remained quite stationary. Mr. Buford watched it for about 20 minutes as it silently left its position and moved towards Carmarthen. He rang Carmarthen police, who suggested it had been a plane or a helicopter, but RAF Brody told him they had not been operating in the area at the time. The officer on duty asked me to describe what I had seen, Mr. Burford continued. When I told him, he said it sounded like one of those UFOs that had been sighted in the Ferryside area recently. I would like to feel what I saw was just a light from a helicopter, he added, but I'm perfectly sure in my own mind that it was something more than that. In another short piece, the space travelers were even working over the bank holiday, taking the time to put the wind-up holiday maker Dr. David Smith. Mr. Smith, from Anglesey, is studying at Krogscotch, where he saw a huge spaceship hovering about 600 feet from the ground on Monday night. He said the ship appeared about six feet long, even though he was a mile or so away from it. It was a golden, pencil-shaped light at an angle in the sky with what looked like a snout at the top end. Underneath was another patch of light, more rounded. The day after Pauline Coombs's sighting, she picked up the Western Telegraph and read about numerous sightings that had been occurring around West Wales. It made her more and more uneasy. And then, odd things started to happen in the home. The wires in their television would burn out on multiple occasions. Light bulbs would explode at an alarming rate. One day, Billy looked at the electrical box and noticed that the power was draining at an alarming rate. Even after the power was shut off, electricity was still being drawn from somewhere. An electrician noted that the atmosphere in the home was so electrically charged that they were surprised that no one had been electrocuted themselves yet.
Joanne and Leanne, the Coombs twin daughters, would experience shadow figures in their room for two weeks following the sighting of the light. One morning, while the oldest son, Clinton, was in the bathroom getting ready for work, he noticed a strange hum moving into the room from the bathroom window and consuming it entirely. During the springtime, the activity increased. One particularly harrowing moment came early that spring. Pauline was driving three of her children home. It was about 8 p.m., and Pauline was racing home, trying to get there before the $6 million man came on. A mile from home, Kieran noticed a strange orange light in the sky, descending at an incredible rate. The object chased the car into the night, blowing past it at one point and turning back around to terrorize them some more. Pauline slammed on the gas, pushing the car as hard as she could, until the lights started to get dimmer and dimmer, and the car slowly came to a halt. The UFO settled right over it and sent down a white beam of light. Everyone piled out and ran the rest of the way home. Pauline, Joanne, Leanne, and Kieran all burst into the home and frantically told Billy about what had happened. The father, of course, didn't believe it, but when he stepped foot outside, he saw for himself the UFO casting its white beam of light down onto the car. Moments later, the beam of light disappeared, and the UFO flew off. And after that, the car would blow its wiring, like the TV, multiple times. Another astonishing encounter occurred in Milford Haven just a day before, and was featured in the Bufora Journal. Here is Norman Oliver's coverage of it. Quote, the variety of cases from Wales in general and the Pembroke area in particular has been amazing, and RIC Randall Jones Pugh can scarcely have had the time to interview one set of witnesses before having further reports thrust upon him. And our first item comes from Herbranston, Milford Haven. Deborah Swan, age 13, was with her brother and five friends on 14 April last. It was around half past six in the evening, and after having been in the park for a while, they decided to explore since there had been so many reports of weird things happening that they thought they'd try to find this outer space thing. Having gone a little way from the park, two of their friends decided to go home as the atmosphere, quote, began to get scary, end quote. The others continued on under a couple of barbed wire fences across a potato field and down a bank. From there, in Deborah's words, quote, there was something in the field opposite out of the ordinary. I have never seen anything like it before in my life. I thought it was my eyes playing a trick, but it wasn't. The most astonishing thing about it was the color, which was a brilliant gleaming silver. The shape was like a round football, and also the movements. It moved at all angles, backwards, frontwards, left to right. As we moved, it moved as well. For example, if we moved to the left, so did this thing. If we moved to the right, it did the same. We then ran back as fast as we could. We didn't hesitate to look back, but just kept running with fright. End quote. Similar football-shaped objects had been seen in Dagenham, Essex, in March, and another in Sheffield in January, making this much more than a West Wales flap, but a flap of the entire United Kingdom.
Not far from Ripperston Farm, in the village of Little Haven, sits a hotel that was once a location of a 17th century fort. The Haven Fort Hotel sits in near isolation atop a knoll overlooking St. Bride's Bay. Rosa Grenville, her husband Frank, and her daughter Francine took over the hotel in 1970. Rosa, a Spanish woman, took over the hotel despite many warnings of the villagers about the spirit of a white lady. Much like Josephine Hewison, who was told that her property was haunted, it wasn't a ghost that visited the Havenfort Hotel in April of 1977. At two in the morning, on the 19th, Rosa retired to her bedroom to read before going to sleep. She turned on the radio and began to flip the pages. But before long, the radio cut out, replaced by an intense humming sound. At first, she assumed it must be the central heating, but she had shut it off like she did most nights in fear of an explosion taking place. She sat up in bed listening to this hum for about 10 minutes before deciding to investigate, and after ruling out the heater, she thought that maybe it was a ship in the bay. Drawing the bedroom curtains back, she saw that there was a pulsating blue light. Quote, Oh dear, someone is trying to break in here, end quote, was her next thought. She had a cottage and chickens out there, and reaching for a pair of binoculars, focused on the blue pulsating light in the field. The light was emitting from an ovular-shaped object resting on the ground. Near it were two tall figures, somewhere in the neighborhood of seven feet tall, wearing silvery-white boiler suits, which covered them from head to toe. Their faces were featureless, and in fact Rosa said that their faces were blank. She saw one of the beings climbing a nearby grassy bank toward a concrete structure that belonged to the Ministry of Defense. Quote, What happened when I saw it was that I was very frightened, Rosa said uh, to interviewers Randall Jones Pugh and F.W. Holliday. I thought something was going to happen to this house, so I switched all the lights on. After that, the lights and the beings disappeared. She struggled to find them again, but they were gone. Following the sighting, Rosa discovered a crescent-shaped mark in the grass out at the landing site. Over a week later, a pulsating blue light returned to the Haven Fort Hotel. At 1 a.m. on April 27th, Rosa observed a light hovering above the hotel. She watched it, armed with a camera, though it never came close enough to photograph. It was as if they knew she had it. Later, her daughter claimed that around 1 a.m. her bedroom window had been rattling. Later that same day, on the evening of the 27th, Billy Coombs came home late, their latest car having blown its wires. This was the third or fourth time, and it was becoming a fearful nuisance to the family. It was date night, though, and the two snuggled up on the couch to watch a western. The fire was roaring, and Pauline wondered if he'd be able to make it through the entire film without falling asleep. An hour later, Billy snored as the action played out on the TV. Everything was picturesque, except for their Labrador, Blackie. Blackie was restless for some reason, weaving in and out of the furniture, ears bolt upright, tail between his legs. And then there were bright lights reflecting off the windows. But who would be visiting at this time of night? She briefly glanced up, noticing how they flickered, 
like a light trying to go out. She settled back down, trying to put it all out of her mind. The lights woke Billy, who was wondering what was going on, and Pauline tried to put her husband at ease. Billy walked over to the window to see what was going on. Quote, Next thing, he was on his feet, arms crossed over his face as if to ward off an assailant, backing away, shouting as he stumbled toward her, Jesus Christ, what's that? What is that? Billy pulled Pauline to her feet and pulled her in close. She strained to look over his shoulder to see what he had seen. Quote, Then she saw it clearly, and as the fear clutched at her stomach and made her weak, she began to scream. There, framed clearly in the window, the towering figure of a man, or figure that looked like a man, but dear God, so much bigger, silver and glowing, but where was the head? She could only see the bottom of it, impossible. The window was seven feet high, it must be, but she could only see his torso, his arms, part of the head, but what was it? A helmet with a blacked out face, she felt faint. Hold me, Billy. Do something. End quote. Pauline ran to the children's bedrooms to make sure that they were okay. Billy only turned round and looked at the large hulking figure still framed in the window. He did the only thing he could think of. Sick the dog after him. And with no shame, Blackie ran far away down the driveway. Billy braced himself against the door, fearing that the intruder might try to come inside. He dared not look at the window to see if he was still there, but he did, and he was. Only now, the extremely tall being placed the palm of their hand on the window, which began to vibrate rapidly. The lights flickered and the television signal interrupted. Billy ran for the phone and rang for a neighbor, Robert Morrison. Morrison could hear the fear in Billy's voice as the frightened farmer urged his friend to come over. Then Billy rang the police as well, and soon they arrived along with Robert Morrison. The police themselves seemed frightened by the incident, and other reports of tall spacemen that they had been receiving. While they investigated outside, the front door remained open the entire time. They found two giant footprints at the base of the window and a rosebush that had been scorched by something. Now, the Coombs family were not the only ones to have seen these strange-suited figures. Pauline was good friends with Rosa Grenville, and she would regularly receive calls from her with updates about the strange happenings at the Havenfort Hotel. But even Pauline's nephew, Mark Marston, had an encounter with one of these beings. Three days after the UFO chase of April 15th, Mark was out looking for bird's eggs in a field a few hundred yards from his home. Night had come, and that was when he noticed a tall figure standing by a silage container. The being was at least six feet tall, completely enclosed inside a silver suit. He wore boots, gloves, and a helmet. Quote, it climbed easily over a big gate, and when I started walking backwards, it came towards me. Mark immediately ran home completely terrified. He glanced over his shoulder and noted that the figure stopped under a streetlight and he could see an antenna on the top of the helmet. Later, Mark's dad, Terry, 
accompanied him into the field looking for evidence of this intruder, and much to his surprise found a huge footprint, approximately 12 inches long, in the slurry. An earlier incident appeared in the Western Telegraph on March 17, 1977. Four days earlier, Stephen Taylor, a 17-year-old resident of Upper Lether, Pennyquim, saw a figure that frightened him so much that he took a swing at them. Quote, the man was over six feet tall with very high cheekbones and big eyes. He was wearing a sort of semi-transparent suit and was coming towards me, end quote. At around 9 p.m., an hour before this encounter, Stephen had spotted a mysterious pear-shaped object in the sky that was glowing in orange color. These silver-suited spacemen were seen outside of Wales as well. In February of 1977, Vera Paddington of Harrow, Middlesex, had an encounter on the road between Weldstone and Harrowweald. At around 10.30 p.m., a silver-suited man appeared in her headlights. Quote, He was walking down the center of the footpath going in our direction, wearing what looked like a silver, all-in-one wetsuit or a diver suit. He was about six feet tall, and on top of his helmet was what appeared to be an aerial about eight inches high. His walk seemed to be a sort of dogged plodding, with his arms swinging about a foot away from his body. I turned round quickly to catch a glimpse of his front, but too late. We were around the bend of the road and out of sight." Quote. A similar figure was seen at Rainford in the county of Merseyside in early January 1978. Four young men were traveling on the old coach road near St. Helens, heading for Liverpool. Jeff Hales was driving the car, and his passengers were Stephen Simpson, Lynn Matthews, and Keith Thomas. In the course of their travel, they made a wrong turn, going right instead of left. Hales quickly realized his mistake and braked sharply, the slick road forcing his car into a muddy ditch. And in the headlights of Jeff's car was a figure standing in the middle of the road, 25 feet away. This humanoid entity was rather broad and stood roughly seven feet tall. They were clad in a one-piece suit that was fluorescent white in color and seemed to glow. They wore short white boots, had claws, and wore some kind of raised rectangular box on their chest that had two red lights on it. They were completely covered from head to toe, making them featureless. Jeff tried to reverse the car, and when he did, the being took three or four steps forward, prompting Jeff to have an asthma attack. There was a brief struggle, but they were finally able to get away, speeding away from the humanoid as fast as possible. They drove to the nearby Brown Birch Farm, waking the farmer to phone the police. And when P.C. McCluskey arrived, made this assessment, quote, There was no doubt that they were scared both visibly and physically. I think they definitely saw something. The lad who was asthmatic was sat in the back of the car when we arrived. His knees were shaking, he was white, and he couldn't speak properly. When he got to the spot, I took the road to the right and I locked my car doors. I wouldn't have gone there on my own without a car radio, end quote. The police searched for half an hour, but failed to turn up any sign of the being. The area was no stranger to UFO landings and humanoid sightings. 
On May 18, 1975, three witnesses at Rain Hill Merseyside observed three tennis ball-sized lights in the shape of a triangle land in a copse of trees. Several unusual footprints were found, which led to a duck pond. They were square-shaped, measuring 14 by 6 inches, and were heavily indented. Oddly enough, the steps began and ended in the middle of a muddy field. Nearly one year later, on May 11, 1976, Mrs. Kent at Higher Fold, Greater Manchester, observed a figure wearing a silvery suit beside a spherical UFO about a mile east from the Rainford Encounter of 1978. And the day before the four men recorded their encounter with the strange humanoid, another set of witnesses had an encounter of their own in Wigan, located approximately three miles northeast of Rainford. Four people were watching TV on New Year's Eve at approximately 1.45 a.m. They all watched as a disc-shaped object that was bright red in color, with a bluish tinge to it, was flying slowly through the sky. This object was quite large and flying incredibly low and slow, you know, like if you're grilling. The craft headed in the direction of Rainford, and in its course, several eyewitnesses reported sightings of the same object flying slowly throughout the area. Not long after the initial spaceman sighting of Mr. and Mrs. Coombs, the twins Leanne and Joanne were playing in one of the lower fields on the property, when they noticed a silver-suited figure, very similar to the one that had appeared at the window, floating around through the hedgerow near them. The girls followed this figure into the field where they saw, quote, an enormous silver saucer thing with lights and windows all around it and a kind of ladder coming from a door, end quote. The figure they followed was nowhere to be found. The twins watched as this object lifted off the ground, dropped the red box from the bottom, and joined a larger saucer in the air. They proceeded down the coast and out of view. Now, the girls went looking for this box, but turned up nothing. But the area that the UFO had once occupied was now statically charged, and there was a loud humming sound detectable in the area as well. The day this sighting occurred was a Sunday, and Pauline's parents were over for a visit. Fed up and believing that the girls were pulling a prank, she went out into the field where more large footprints were found, which was odd, given that the creatures floated. Where the ship had landed, a 50-foot diameter area of scorched grass was discovered as well. Two weeks earlier, Clinton, while working on the farm, noticed how the cows were avoiding a certain patch of land. When he went to investigate, he found a large, round patch of scorched grass, roughly 50 feet in diameter. Later that day, Pauline saw this figure from a window inside the house, lurking at the dark edge of the driveway. He was, quote, tall, silver, luminous, end quote. He floated down the long drive, past the house, and disappeared into the darkness. The next morning, Pauline woke up later than normal, and in an unusual amount of pain. Her eyes were puffy and swollen, and so was her arm, which was difficult to move. She was feeling very fatigued. Her daughter, Leanne, had a creepy explanation for why. While sleeping in her parents' bed that night with her mother, Billy was down tending to the cows as 
there were calves being born. They were still scared from what they had seen earlier that day. But the young girl watched as a floating, disembodied hand came into the room and touched her mother on the arm. It was silver in color. It took three weeks for Pauline to fully recover from her injuries. Sometime in May or June, most of the family went to a Jubilee Day celebration that was happening in town. That is, most of the family, except for Billy, who was tending to his cattle, and Clinton, who was in the house at the time. When Pauline and the family had returned, they found the house to be locked up completely, the shades drawn tight. She pounded on the door to get Clinton to open, and so he did, cautiously. He began to tell a story about an enormous silver car that made no sound as it traveled down the driveway. The vehicle pulled up to the house, and two men exited. These men were tall and thin, had waxy skin, abnormally large foreheads, dark hair that was slicked back and dressed all in black. The most arresting feature about them, though, is that they hovered slightly above the ground, gliding along it instead of walking. He said that they were, quote, like an illusion, end quote. Clinton was terrified, and he quickly locked the front and back doors and hid upstairs. Clinton was not alone in witnessing these men. On their property sits a small house that the Coombs rented out to a woman named Carol. She, too, saw these strange men approach the farmhouse and try to enter it from the front and back. Now, for some reason, Carol decided that she wanted to take the trash outside. She felt like the man was far enough away that he wouldn't make it to her in time. But, just as she was about to drop the trash in the can, the man appeared beside her and asked, Where is Pauline Coombs? When will she be back? Carol responded that she didn't know, prompting this man to completely disappear. She went back inside to see if the silver car was there, and saw the man now standing behind it. He got into the car, and it drove away. A few days later, the Havenfort Hotel would receive a similar visit. Rosa was out, but her daughter Francine was there, and they wanted to know where Rosa Grenville was, and when she would be back. After the Men in Black encounter, things died down on the farm for a few months, until September, when, as Kieran was about to head inside to wash up for lunch, he saw a shadowy figure out from outside wandering from room to room, window to window, this being slightly undulated when it moved, and later that day their TV blew out for the first time in months. Two weeks later, Kieran was driving one of the tractors when a woman in white mysteriously popped out of nowhere. She had long, white, flowing hair, and unfortunately, he hit her with the tractor. But when he got off to find her, she was nowhere to be found. The activity then started to focus on their cattle. Billy was working long nights as it was birthing season. He was in the cowsheds most nights, making sure that there were no complications during the birthing process. It was during one such night that Billy received a phone call from a neighboring farmer named Martin Chambers. His cows were running amok on his property, and he had been trying to get a hold of him for an hour as they grazed on his land. Now, 
there's a time difference here. Minutes before Billy received this phone call, he had gone to check on them while they were all, and made sure that they were all there. That doesn't make sense, and if Billy didn't see his own cattle, then what did he see? Returning to the pens, he found that they were completely empty this time, with the locks still firmly in place. Billy was dumbfounded by the entire event. It just didn't make sense. We're talking about a hundred cows here. While there are conflicting dates for this next incident, it was a startling one and involved an outside member of the family, Pauline's mother, Mrs. Grix. Her daughter Tina had stayed with her grandparents the night before, and on Sunday was bringing the, her mother over for dinner. It was 3 p.m., and Mrs. Grix exclaimed, What on earth is that? Pauline quickly stopped the car, and everyone piled out and observed a round, flat disc, whitish in color, moving across the sky at the speed of a motorboat going fast across the bay. The disc gradually descended from its position, veering closer and closer to stack rocks, a natural feature of the coast and managed by the military, as a tank range was located adjacent to them. The object looked as if it was about to crash, but ultimately disappeared into the rock itself. Intrigued by the series of events, they decided to go get a better look, crossing over two fields to get to the cliff's edge. From their position, they could see two men moving about on the rock. They believed them to be skin divers at first, but a closer look would reveal something far stranger. To quote Randall Jones Pugh's write-up on this particular part of the Coombs case, quote, Both women, however, soon realized that whilst the two figures had the requisite number of arms, legs, and feet, their heads appeared to be very elongated and far larger than the average human head. Indeed, Mrs. Coombs described the heads as being rectangular in shape, with the corners rounded off. When I had queried her as to whether or not she was quite convinced that they were not skin divers or fishermen, Mrs. Coombs assured me that whilst they were human in shape, they were definitely not human beings. Everyone looked on for 15 minutes as these silver-suited figures moved about on the rock's uneven surface. Another factor ruling out anyone being on these rocks is the fact that they jutted out some 80 to 100 feet in the air and were extremely difficult to climb. On the right-hand side of the rock, they could see a door opening and shutting quite fast. Quote, there appeared to be a shimmering haze around the doors, which seemed to be of a size commensurate with that of an ordinary household door, but the interior of the rocky space behind it was quite black. End quote. They observed these silvery-clad beings walking in a manner that looked as if they were using stairs, though there was no way that they could ever be stairs in this object. Another figure was seen to the left of the rocks, walking as if on water. They watched this being for a period of time before they disappeared behind the rock's surface. In Clive Harold's book, The Uninvited, the beings on the rock turned and looked directly at everyone watching them and the family ran back to the car and went home. The air around the farm grew warmer that spring, which was odd. Cows and calves went missing, never to be seen again. A shadow snuck up on Clinton one day, and assuming that it was his father, turned only to find that there was no one there. 
They saw strange floating columns of light, and on one occasion, Pauline witnessed her front yard lighting up at night as if it were daylight. The light remained for a minute before fading away. While Paul Palmer, an investigator, visited the farm, he interviewed the family for approximately six hours and witnessed the cows disappearing and reappearing on other farms three times that day. With the family on edge, their doors were open at night, and they slept in the same room most nights. On one night in particular, Pauline saw a column of light coming from outside the room. She assumed it was the hallway light, but found herself in a domed room sitting on a bench, transported. In front of her are six women and some other figures that look like men in black. One of the women approaches her and just stares. And the next morning she wakes up later than normal, but with a sense of calm and peace. By this time, they had considered selling the farm, but Pauline had a new sense that everything would be okay, that it was over. One night, after dropping off the kids with Pauline's parents, Billy and Pauline went to grab a drink. On the way back, they noticed a yellow object hovering above the farmhouse. In a brief moment of goodbye, the object hovered over the cow sheds, doing that pendulous motion that Pauline and many others had reported in the months leading up to this moment. And then the object shot off, and the ordeal was over for the Coombs family. The Ministry of Defense made a small inquiry into what was going on during the West Wales Flap of 1977, in response to a number of reports of unidentified flying objects. They took reports from a number of very serious individuals, and a spokesperson stated, We investigate every report on this assumption, and we do not discount the possibility of intelligent life in outer space. You would figure that this would be a bombshell, right? Well, it wasn't. The MOD would go on to state that they never received any reports at all concerning strange aerial activity, but concluded that, quote, a practical joker was responsible. The man claiming responsibility for it? Glenn Edwards, a businessman from Milford Haven. The practical joker revealed himself to be Glyn Edwards, a local businessman from Milford Haven. We had a round table uh, dinner and the theme was a fancy dress dinner. So um, as it was topical at the time, I decided to dress up as a spaceman. So I borrowed an industrial suit from one of our local suppliers. <laughs> I went to the dinner and before the dance had started I went out to the car to remove it but some of my colleagues said let's go around the village. So we all jumped in the car. Bumped into a few people, turned a few heads and uh, after about 10 minutes we decided to go back. Going back then we stopped outside the Haven Fort Hotel. I started walking up the drive in this uh, silver spacesuit, and they had the headlights of the car behind me, so I was silhouetted going up the drive of the hotel. All my colleagues were hiding in the bushes at that time, and one of them said, there's somebody in the window. I went a bit further, and another one shouted, oh, she's got a gun. And I thought, right, that's it. I dived under a rhododendron bush and lost my footing and rolled all the way back down to the road. One of them said, let's do it again. I said, not so likely, she's got a gun, I'm off. 
So then we went back to the hotel, changed out the suit, and we just carried on with the, the dinner. One cannot ignore the military connection to this case. As we have mentioned, a long list of bases in the area and the military personnel that showed up on the Coombs homestead the day after Pauline's first sighting. Other MOD officials came forward in the 1980s claiming that they borrowed hazmat suits from a local refinery and that they were only keeping people away from certain areas for unknown reasons. What happened in West Wales is beyond the weird. And while some of these explanations may solve a few sightings that took place during the West Wales flap of 1977, the Terror Triangle doesn't give up its secrets easily. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, buy some merch, or find the link to our Patreon page, head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com. There's a P.O. Box if you want to send us stuff. Uh, It's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. As always, you can check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that Todd Purse and I make, on Instagram at Welcome UFO People, and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. We also have high-res images available for download on each of our Patreon pages. And we also have prints in stock of our first seven issues, These are 8x10 prints on Matt cardstock, and a portion of the proceeds are being donated to the Creative Visions Factory in Wilmington, Delaware, which provides individuals on the behavioral health spectrum with opportunities for self-expression, empowerment, and recovery through the arts. The music featured in this episode is from the album Spaceman Mystery of the Terror Triangle by The Night Monitor. You can check out all of Neil's albums on Bandcamp at thenightmonitor.bandcamp.com, and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at The Night Monitor. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg. And the great Desdemone is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up. Because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies or hovering over St. Bride's Bay in West Wales. In gray, we trust.